You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. Right now, we're talking to Peter Navarro. Uh, He has written a book called Taking Back Trump's America, Why We Lost the White House and How We'll Win It Back. Peter Navarro, thank you so much for being back with us. We appreciate it. I'm glad you uh, you watched that so we don't have to. <laughs> I know that's right. That's, that's a good line. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, I well. stole that from someone else, but my old friend Herman well. Kane, who was an old friend of mine, uh, Herman said, "I'll give you credit the first time I use your line, but then after that, I just use it." <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm I come from an academic world. You know, what what there's you know, like one source. It's it's thievery, but if Otherwise, it's academic research. You know, That's it's footnoted you're, a lot. So. You're right. You're right. <laughs> you know, I I did not finish your book, but I've read about half of it, and I I think it's it's important. It's an important discussion because you know I I kind of get on my soapbox about leadership and where leadership is being able to acknowledge not only the things you did right but the things you did wrong, and then you know saying how you're going to fix them. And I think that's what you've done yeah. here. You've laid out what went wrong, what and how to fix it. Right. And the second part, when you get to it, that's that's what that's all about. But to tell you about Trump's America book is is, is in two parts. I, you know, I go back to the beginning. I'm, I'm actually one of only three. This this always amazes me when I say it. I was only one of three people who was with the boss all the way from the campaign to the end. And that's surviving. Right. The other two are. Stephen Miller, the speechwriter, and Dan Scavino, uh, the tweetmeisters, just warriors in the trenches. And what what puzzled me when I first got to the Trump White House was how many bad guys we had inside the perimeter seeking to disrupt, derail, and destroy President Trump's agenda. And, and that, that was a battle that I had to repeatedly fight. You know, the old Ronald Reagan thing about personnel as policy, meaning that you got to put the right people around as a president if you're going to get the right outcomes. Um, in the Trump world, we had bad personnel like Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, son-in-law Jared Kushner, Chief of Staff John Kelly, making not only bad policy decisions that, which hurt the boss, but these led to the bad politics that made that election close enough to seal and and as a student of history as you you are uh you do appreciate the importance because at the beginning of the book there's two quotes it's like past is prologue meaning that whatever happened in the past is going to happen again right but there's also if you don't remember the mistakes of the past you're condemned to repeat them and so that's the war and what i'm trying to do is make sure we don't repeat the mistakes of the first term. And so in the second part, you'll see there's a green cabinet. There's a dream staffing of the West wing. But it, I think the, the most important part of the taking back Trump's American book is to, is to clearly identify what Trump Republicanism means and how you know, people like traditional Republicans like Kevin McCarthy house in the house and Mitch McConnell in the Senate. They're not, 
MAGA. And we need to get them out, replace them with Trump Republicans, just as we need to get Nancy Pelosi the hell out of the House and Joe Biden out of the White House. So let me ask you a couple of policy questions. So when President Trump did a fantastic job on the economy, I mean, if we had not been as strong going into the pandemic as we were, things would have been a lot worse than they were. And um, but President Obama, even with all his faults, he did grow the economy about one percent a year. So President Trump took over a, a lackluster economy, but it wasn't a declining economy. How would that be different if Trump is if President Trump is reelected in the next term? He's going to be taking over economy that's in a lot tougher spot. How would he approach that or how do you think he should approach that? Well, let's let's remember that that whatever success Joe Biden can claim, um, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like the uh, the meth addict. Uh, injecting in, in meth into their veins and having a temporary high and then crashing. What Joe Biden has been doing with the help of the Pelosi and Schumer Congress is passing these mega trillion dollar stimulus bills, which are not spending our many w- money well. They're putting us in debt. And it's was that that has been sp- stoking inflation, the inflation yeah. which we're now witnessing at the same time. The economy, by by the traditional measures, is in a recession. Things are likely to get worse. The stock market, and I warned back in November um, of 21 that the stock market had peaked, and, and since then it's been in a downward trend. These are all signs that Biden has, has through politician-made decisions, basically created a stagflation crisis on par with 1970s. You asked me what would Trump do different. Well, the the wisdom Donald Trump had, and I was his, his, uh, his economic uh, advisor during the 2016 campaign, the, what we did was promise structural adjustments to the economy, which would grow our economy without being inflationary. And... That's what we did. And whether it was lowering the tax burden, lowering the regulatory burden, whether it was leveling the playing field on trade, whether it was pursuing strategic energy dominance, making us a net oil exporter, which was a miracle. All of these things basically kept the inflation rate down to virtually nothing at the same time that they built up jobs and real wages. So if you ask me what Trump would do different than Biden, he would do what he did the first time around. You got to remember, Biden was part of Obama-Biden, where for eight years they created this so-called new normal, where the normal was like 1% growth. It was like stagnation. And we came in and consistently beat growth projections, and we did it through structural changes. So that's the wisdom of Donald Trump. And um, it, look, the longer this goes on, the more difficult it's going to become. So well, the, one of the key messages of taking back Trump's America is got to be getting Trump back in the White House to make good policy starts with getting the, the Democrats the hell out of that Congress and leadership um, in November. So like a laser beam, we got to focus on those elections to help House candidates on the Republican side get out and vote wherever you are, 
and let's make that difference. And come January, we'll at least put an end to uh, the, the digging of the hole we're digging. You know, the first rule is if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. So I'm a tough love kind of person, okay? So I I have um, looked at things in a lot of different ways. I voted for President Trump twice. I But interestingly enough, I was very sick in November of 2020, right after the election. It wasn't COVID. It was something else. I'm, and I preached from the beginning of COVID, don't forget the rest of your health, because there are worse things than yeah. COVID. And I had one of those things. And so for about six yeah. weeks, literally, I was completely out of it. And um, oh. I missed a lot of that. But I'm perfectly healthy now. But the interesting thing was these poor nurses that had been working COVID for eight months, when they figured out who I was, they would tiptoe into my room and ask me what I thought about the election <laughs> and and honestly i was just trying to live at that point in time uh but what it did was is it allowed me to formulate three things that i thought were problems you put five things in your book but three things that i thought were problems and here's what they are and you can tell me if i'm crazy or not okay the the yeah. first the first one was i'm a daughter of a pow a world war ii pow and i was able to look past the things that President Trump said about John McCain, but I, I I can understand why people were very offended that even after John McCain's death, he continued to say those things. And so I think that was one thing that hurt him. I think secondly, the first debate, he was a lot, I thought the idea behind the first debate, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, was to let Joe Biden say something stupid because he'd been in the basement for yeah. three months. And they were just, she, he was the the president was so combative that it didn't happen. And then I think the third thing was these rallies were amazing. I was working for a super PAC um, leading up to 2020 uh, for uh, against Raphael Warnock. And we did a magazine called Red Clay. In the middle of the magazine was all of the Trump accomplishments. And it was the most requested part of that magazine. And I think that on those rallies, instead of him talking about who he was mad at that day, he should have talked about his accomplishments. Am I off base? No, let me let me kind of work through through your list here. Um, The McCain feud, and that's exactly what it was, uh, I think did um, the, the most damage in the state of Arizona. We won the state of Arizona. They they stole it. Okay, that that was an eleven thousand vote margin, and we now know that what went on there um, was enough to swing the election to Biden illegally. Okay, but uh, there's a really strong wing of Rhino Republicans there that are McCainites, and their opposition both prior to election day and then after election day to prevent any uh, scrutiny of those election results certainly hurt so i understand what you're saying about mccain my i'll just tell you that uh, my own interactions with mccain's uh office um and this surprised the heck out of me he was virulently opposed to the trump uh buy american and trade agenda no i know uh, he yeah. was a pure yeah. globalist right but you know you know you don't you don't uh, spit on somebody's grave or speak out. So, th- so th- that's what I got to say about that. Um, with with respect to uh, the second issue in terms of the debate, uh, <clears throat> I think I think one of the problems there 
was Chris Christie. Um, just did an awful. That guy is like a snake in the grass. And for whatever reason, the boss relied on Christie to help him do his debate prep. And uh, when the boss went in there and found out he had two opponents, not one, the other being Chris Wallace, I think that that set off his combat of uh, uh, juices there. Um, and, uh, you know, the last, uh, the last thing, look, um, a lot of the Taking Back Trump's America book at the back end talks about the role of the corporate media in what I call in Taking Back Trust America dominating the news cycle, right? We had a daily battle in the White House over what would be the stories of the day to emphasize. And we, on a daily basis, we would lose that battle to CNN, MSNBC, and the anti-Trump wing of Fox News. I mean, it just, it just happened. And so... Um, I think the, the greater problem here was not so much what he said at the rallies, but the fact that he didn't have anybody. Here's the point. Here's the point. He didn't have anybody to do his wet work, okay? He didn't have killers, as he likes to call them, in the press shop to go out and carry the weight in terms of the attacks. He didn't have attack dogs, so he felt like he was under siege and had to do it himself. And And, look, I mean... That's part of the problem. I, I, the, the essence of the Taking Back Trump's America book is that the bad personnel in the White House, press shop, Treasury Secretary, everyone in between, let him down. And that election became close enough to steal. My thing right now is, and you mentioned some people that we need to get rid of, and, and there's a lot of people in Congress that are and and running for office that are 75 and older. And I know that the former president is about 75 years old. I don't know exactly what his age is. But should a guy like Donald Trump, should he support someone else and try to get a younger person in there to run for president? Or should he be the guy? Martha... Donald Trump is, is the most amazing physical specimen I've ever seen in my life. Over four years in the Trump White House, nobody could keep up with him. I remember flying down to Buenos Aires, Argentina, with the boss for a G20 meeting. And uh, he, all the way on the plane down, in his suit, he's working, gets off nonstop. And then when we come back, right, I'm on the plane and we're sitting there in his office on Air Force One. Everybody's around. We were all in good spirits. And one by one, people are dropping off to sleep. They're, like, just exhausted. And he's sitting behind his desk doing stuff, reading the paper, watching watching a little bit of, uh, of the news. And my point is that if you look at, like, his ability to campaign, and and do his work. I mean, it's like I, with him, it's like seventies the new fifty. It's like so. No, but the other problem, of course, is I can't think of a single person in politics who understands better what needs to be done and who will have the courage to do what needs to be done. Remember, he was an outlier in that when he ran in twenty sixteen, he didn't need the rhino money. He didn't need Wall Street's money, Silicon Valley's money, 
the globalist money, didn't need big pharma's money. Um, and, you know, who else would there be? I do, in the Taking Back Trump's America book, I do handicap the vice president's sweepstakes. I talk about DeSantis and Haley and Cruz and Cotton um, and all of the names that are popping up now. But at the end of the day, my own view is Donald Trump is is a transformational figure. We need him back in the White House, full stop. Well, I, you know, and I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I think he's going to run. I think that, um, you know, obviously Joe Biden says he's going to run, but two years is a long time when you're as slow as Joe Biden is. And so who knows what's going to happen with him. Um, I think it's going to be an interesting race to watch. And I think that based on how Republicans do, I think what people miss in all the noise of the 2020 election was that the House picked up 15 of the 19 seats uh, that they that they were really gunning for. So they they made a lot of progress in 2020 in getting back to the majority. But to this time, they're going to they have an opportunity to do even more. And people need to get out and vote. If you even look at our Senate races in the January 5th runoff, um, there were 450,000 Republicans that didn't get back out to vote. And there were only 150,000 Democrats. So Republicans still clearly have the majority in Georgia. They've just got to get back out and vote. Well, I tell you, Georgia, Georgia is an enigma wrapped in a mystery to me um, because uh, Kemp and Raffensperger, who, who remain in power, and I think Kemp will beat Stacey Abrams, uh, they certainly are part of that rhino wing. I'm, I'm hoping that um, Herschel Walker will, will win, uh, but this is a case where the rhino Mitch McConnell is not stepping up to the plate with the kind of financial and political support that well, I mean, the, needs. The good news, yeah, that's a I mean, the good news is is that um, Herschel has a much longer relationship with Brian Kemp that he's had even with Donald Trump. He's known Brian Kemp since yeah. he was in college. And I yeah, think they're going to work well together campaigning. And I think that you're right. I think Brian Kemp wins by about five points. And the better Brian Kemp does, the more likely it is Herschel Walker wins. Good and so man. we're going to... Well, that's good analysis. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. I've, I've been looking at it a little bit. But anyway, Peter Navarro, the book is worth reading. I mean, it is uh, something that you ought to look at. Thank you so much for your extra time today. Hey, Martha, you're just so very thoughtful. I appreciate your questions. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Jonathan Butcher is joining me right now from the Heritage Foundation that is going to talk to us a little bit about this new Education Freedom Report card. And just full disclosure, Jonathan, I'm on the Georgia State Board of Education uh, and serve for the 9th District. So I'm hoping we got a good mark. So love to have you with the program. Thank you. Great to be with you. So give us an overview of this report and what you all looked at when you talked about education freedom. So we looked at four big areas. The first, of course, and this is something that we've supported at Heritage and conservatives around the country have supported for years, is school choice. And we heavily weighted our uh, scores for different states uh, on whether or not a state had a school choice policy. The other area is um, regulation and whether a state highly regulates 
whether it's school choice or homeschooling or even the, the assigned public schools. And so if there's a high level of regulation, if there's a large number of administrators compared to teachers, they would get low marks for those kinds of regulations. The next was spending. So if a state gets a good return on investment, that is, if the taxpayer resources that are used uh, result in improvements on national comparisons. And then finally, this question of transparency, which, of course, has been in the news a lot lately, and whether or not parents can see what their children are being taught, uh, whether or not there are parent groups that can represent the interests of parents in a state. So those are the four big areas, school choice, transparency, regulations, and then spending or a return on investment. So what did you find? So Georgia ranks closer to the top than the bottom. I mean, they're right around 14 for uh, just about all of these. Um, so I think that uh, on the school choice you know, um, category, as you know, Georgia has a, um, a strong school choice law. It has, um, some, a private school scholarship program. Um, I think that the, uh, like many states around the country, I think state lawmakers now should be looking at, uh, innovative solutions like education savings accounts, especially as we come out of the pandemic and see that so many children are behind. I think we have students especially students who were behind before the pandemic, right? Uh, that things were made even worse during COVID-19, and uh, they need some uh, aggressive options, like being able to find a personal tutor with an account to help them. So what do you think needs to be done? I mean, who does a great job at this? So the states that were near the top for us, uh, Florida was first overall, Arizona was second overall, uh, Arizona actually ranked first in the school choice category, whereas Florida was ranked third. But, I mean, look, when you're in the top five, I think that that's always, you know, something that, that we want to highlight because states like Florida and Arizona have more than one private and public learning option for families. So both Florida and Arizona have pretty expansive open enrollment laws that allow parents to choose a public school outside their zoned area. Both states have very healthy charter school environments. Uh, Both states have tax credit scholarships where individuals make charitable contributions to, or businesses make charitable contributions to scholarship organizations who then award private school scholarships. And then finally, both Florida and Arizona have education savings accounts available to, in the case of Arizona, all students now in the state. So, you know, and I love that you mentioned Florida because, you know, I I feel really bad about Jeb Bush and how he has run for president went really both times because he was supposed to kind of run when his brother ran and then he ran against the Trump juggernaut and and he got called names and he did all that stuff. But if you look at Florida education today, um he really oversaw a transformation of Florida education that's been continued by governors since him, but he doesn't get the credit I think he deserves for what he put in place. Well, I think his policies, such as grading schools on a simple A through F scale, right, in a way that parents can understand was very important. I mean, that's a kind of transparency that, you know, we we think provides clear information, right, to families as they look for schools, uh, not to mention the private school scholarship options that, that he helped to usher in. Uh, all of those were, were important, and they were important because they were helping students 
who were from disadvantaged backgrounds, right? So Florida's tax credit scholarship, which we were talking about just a moment ago, that um, scholarship program is specifically for children from low-income families, right? It's specifically from the students who may not have the resources to go and find a personal tutor or to get help, uh, like uh, students from higher in higher income brackets, right? So for those who would say, hey, wait a minute, you know, you're ranking states like, you know, say Massachusetts uh, near the bottom, and they'll point to test scores and say, hey, but wait a minute, what about the average test score in Massachusetts? Well, because the average score in Massachusetts is high, they have a 20-point achievement gap in most of their subjects, right, between students from different backgrounds. So taxpayers are paying quite a lot in some of those New England states, right, for public education, which means they're spending a lot on those income gaps. Whereas in a place like Florida, Arizona, uh, even in North Carolina today, you have multiple scholarship options. You are allowing families to find a quality experience for your student when the assigned school is not meeting their needs. And that's why we called it the Freedom Report Card, right? I mean, we're talking about a landscape that allows everybody no matter your background, no matter where you're from, to find a great learning opportunity. Well, and I think they do a better job, and I'm including our state in this, okay, in the top 25, um, I, actually in the, I'm meaning the top 25%. You know, I think they do a better job of including parents, okay? Um, you know, it's, it's really important uh, to be able to include parents. Obviously, teachers are experts and administrators are experts. And I'm not pretending that even as a Georgia State School Board member that I know everything about education. But you've got to include parents and parents need to feel included because let's just face it, they're footing the bill. So they need to understand how things are coming about, who's making the decisions, they have to have recourse, and then there have to be options and choices. And I think if you do all of that, you can have a great school system. Well, I think you're exactly right, and we should remember that parents are the experts of their children, right? I mean, parents are the ones who know their children the best. And, you know, as um, someone who's, who's also on a, a state appointed board here in South Carolina, um, I think, you know, our role as, as board members, whether it's for a school, whether it's for a private school, public school, or all the schools in the state or groups of schools, right? I mean, our role is not to decide how they operate day to day. It's to make sure that they are following the policies that are set forth by the legislature and the governor, right? And so, you know, as uh, education leaders, our role is to help uh, schools stay within the guidelines and the boundaries that are set um, by state officials. And, um, you know, so I think making sure that parents can uh, have options to, uh, to find, you know, great opportunities when those boundaries simply aren't enough for their child, you know, that's why we need to empower them with, with quality options. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great opportunity and a great thing to have. Now, where can people find this report card? So it's on heritage.org forward slash education report card. And uh, you can find us on Twitter as well. We have our education reform uh, center is also on Twitter. And I always like to point out to people that one of the founders of the Heritage Foundation was former Georgia Congressman Ben Blackburn. And he was a congressman 
uh, back when we only had four districts, and now we have 14. <laughs> and so uh, he was one of the people, if you go to the Heritage Foundation, which I have on many occasions because they have a great radio studio there and all of that, uh, you go there and there's a great portrait of uh, Congressman Blackburn. And uh, I was able to visit with him right before he passed away a number of years ago. And he was a just fount fountain of information and really a a warrior on the conservative movement well we're very proud of what the legacy that heritage has before us and we are hoping that we will continue right to be stalwarts when it comes to free enterprise when it comes to individual liberty and national defense jonathan butcher from the heritage foundation thank you so much for being with us today Thank you. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show. We are live from Washington, D.C., where I have this beautiful view of the United States Capitol from my booth. And we are joined right now by Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Thank you for being with me. Oh, thanks for having me, Martha. And you do really have the most beautiful view right here. It is <laughs> a gorgeous day in Washington. It is a great day in Washington. I always feel hopeful when I come here. I mean, I know... There's lots of problems, but when you look at things like the Capitol and the Washington Monument, the Smithsonian, and the the things, you go, okay, we got problems, but we can fix them. We can fix them if we have the right people in power, but the Democrats are not doing that. Just for example, Mayor Muriel Bowser here in Washington, D.C., she keeps our nation's capital in horrific condition. Uh, Crime is out of control. The homeless population is out of control. It's not the safe city that it used to be it's there's there's litter all over the streets but it should be a wonderful place just as you mentioned that you know the washington memorial the the smithsonian museum all of the wonderful places our beautiful capital and the white house should be a place that every american should be so proud of but democrat control is just not good so my 98 year old uncle passed away on monday and it was he had a wonderful life but he was an immigrant okay he came here in 1947 after the fall of india and uh part of that revolution and in 1947 he was going to ucla getting his phd he immigrated here he changed his major while he was at ucla that was during the time when we had very low immigration rates literally within a few days someone knocked on his door and said hey you changed your major are you trying to overstay your visa Okay, the reason why I tell this story is really it's, it's, it's a cool story because he, he ended up staying and having a great life and all the things that you want when you immigrate. But with a paper system and no computers, they were able to know that he changed his major and come and ask him about it. I mean, I think it's just got to be a case of whether you want to do it or not. They were controlling immigration during that period of time. Why can't we do it now? They have no excuses. I mean, look, we walk around with these cell phones and we can... I was just using that example. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, perfect example. I mean, we, we can sit here. You can order your groceries off your cell phone, call your mom. You can order an Uber, get a, get a ride. You can check your email and, and text message people almost all at the same time, but somehow we can't track, you know, immigrants or we can't track people seeking asylum. We can't track illegal aliens in our country. 
it is a failure. It's a failure. And this is why I introduced articles of impeachment on Joe Biden. Not only is he not upholding his oath of office, he does not care about our southern border. He doesn't care about upholding our laws. But really, all of America are in danger and migrants are dying every single day. It's a humanitarian crisis on both sides. Fentanyl overdoses, number one cause of death for 18 to 45-year-olds. And now just for moms and dads, listen, you guys need to pay attention. There is now a candy out, um, and it's a, it's a powdered candy, and it is laced with fentanyl from China. And children are dying from eating this candy that I don't know who is giving it to them, but it's something we really uh, should, should warn every parent about and make sure our kids, and you know what's coming, Halloween. So that's another terrifying thing. But what Joe Biden has done, he is the best business partners the cartels have ever had. They are making more money than ever before with drug trafficking and human trafficking. And and it's Joe Biden's fault. Do you, you know, we immigrate legally 1.1 million a year. That's more than the rest of the world combined. We are now on our second year of almost 2 million coming across the border. It's going to be more than 2 million this year. No one can make the case we're anti-immigrant because we immigrate more than the rest of the world combined. It's just this this attitude that it's never enough. And we've got a president that has never been to the border. We have a vice president who went to Texas, but she didn't go to the border. We have a man in our listening office by the name of Doug Hansen, who has gone five times to the border with his wife to help Border Patrol agents to give them water and to pick up migrants and to do things in a Christian giving way. Yeah. He knows more about the border than the president of the United States does. Of course he does. And he definitely knows more than the White House press secretary, who's a about it, and then she lies on television on behalf of Joe Biden. No, it's outrageous. Um, you know, they claim they're pro immigrant, but they're not. More migrants are dying in this border crisis than ever before in human history. So if the Democrats want to claim about they care about the people that are trying to immigrate to the United States, they're lying. They're causing their deaths because they're saying, come on in. Our border is wide open. We will not enforce the laws. They've bound the the hands of Border Patrol and ICE agents. They're so frustrated. They're demoralized. They're even committing suicide because they're not able to do the jobs they signed up for. This entire thing is the biggest failure in in American history, and there is no other country on earth that would allow a daily invasion of their borders like we are having happen to our own. Yeah, I was in England on vacation this summer, uh, and they were complaining about 500 a day coming in. And I said, I wish we were back at 500 a day, which is what we were at the end of the Trump administration. Now, you're at the end of your first term. You're up for re-election. The first re-election is always the most difficult, if you look at it statistically. So tell us, first of all, how your campaign's going. But also, you know, you Google Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Lord have mercy, you know, lots of stuff comes up. And we've talked about this before. So what do you think is the biggest misconception about you? Well, I don't even have to explain it. My district totally gets it, Martha. And that's why I'm so grateful to the people back at home. Um, they know who the media is. The media lies. They watch what they did to President Trump uh, for four years and that they're still doing it. So I have nothing to explain to all of my voters. They they uh, elected me over 70% during the primary. That was actually the hard part 
part. In my district, the general election is not a problem because Georgia's 14th district in northwest Georgia, there is no way they're going to elect a Democrat, especially some guy running around with a cowboy hat that doesn't own one head of cattle and can't explain to anyone uh, why he dropped his his wife, the mother of his child, off at a homeless shelter when, when he had married her uh, uh, from Russia. So he has a lot of explaining to do. He had a big career of being a contractor overseas but won't tell anybody what he did. I mean, Northwest Georgia, the people there, they are not going to elect Marcus Flowers, so I am not concerned one bit. But what I am telling the people in my district is I am really grateful for them. I am honored to serve and represent them and be their force, be their voice here in Washington, D.C. I am looking forward to Republicans taking back the House. I'm excited about the committee assignments that I have been promised by our leadership, and I can I can tell them that I'm fighting for them every single day, but they definitely know it because they shake my hand and tell me thank you every time I'm back home. You just light up when you talk about the district. You know, uh, you can see it in your face. I want to give you an example you probably haven't thought of that you can, is another example of hypocrisy, Not nothing to do with you. But you know, the hurricane hit uh, Puerto Rico this week. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's a terrible situation again where they've been without power and it's starting to be restored. If you recall when Maria hit Puerto Rico, um, President Trump was, which I can understand, it's an island. If everything gets wiped out in an island, it takes time to get things there so that you can get things back in place. But every day, wall to wall, they were talking about Donald Trump and Hurricane Maria. And this time, they're not doing it. So someone asked me the question, and I said, it's because the Democrats in power. It doesn't matter. And this wasn't just Trump. They did the same thing to President Bush about Katrina. They did the same thing there. It's like when a disaster happens and the Democrats in power, they get all the time they need to fix it. If a Republican's in power, they get criticized from the moment it happens. Martha, that is the greatest point. I am so glad that you are telling your listeners this because that is so true. We're not seeing anything about the poor people in Puerto Rico, but you're right. When it was President Trump, it was wall-to-wall coverage every day. You know, there's other issues in America, too. You know, they constantly show Benny Thompson from Mississippi that is the chair of the, the January 6th committee, and they show him all the time on TV there. But back home in his district in Mississippi, there is literally disgusting brown water coming out of every faucet. People can't even drink the water or bathe in that water, wash their clothes in that water in their homes at home, and it's crumbling infrastructure under Democrat control. But they, the, the media won't show that about Benny Thompson's district and how bad it is there. They're just going to show his lies on January 6th. That's our problem, Martha, is the media is so dishonest and they truly control so many people and how they vote based on the lies or the stories they choose to cover or the stories that they overcover and twist the message on. So is that the thing that most surprised you once you got up here? I mean, I know you knew it before, but as far as the level of it or what were what was your aha moment since you've been a congresswoman as far as wow, this is a lot worse than I thought it was. Well, I you know, one of the biggest things that shocked me was after I got kicked off committees by Nancy Pelosi and I, I went and sat on the House floor and they were debating bills and then they called the bill up for a vote and it was a voice vote and there were only less than 10 members of Congress in the House chamber and I was one of them and they passed that bill by voice and it was seven million dollars and I was like what 
I didn't vote. I have a voting card. I didn't vote. And so I, I spent some time learning the, the rules uh, and understanding how it works. And I found something that I could do to change that. So I spent a lot of time. I mean, I'm talking week after week, hours, hours and hours on end. And I, I would uh, force a recorded vote. So every time they would finish debating the bill and they would call it up for a vote and it would they were going to pass it by voice with like five members of Congress in there. And there's 435 of us. I would say, Madam Speaker, I asked for the recorded vote. And so all these bills, I mean, we're over, my goodness, I think we're like it, over 550 bills now that are on record for the American people. So they can look up any member of Congress, me, a Democrat, it doesn't matter who, they can look us up and see how we voted on bills. That was, that to me, that was the most powerful thing that I could do, uh, not only for my district at home, to give them, here's my job record, so you can see how I'm voting um, on behalf of you. But I also feel like it's the best thing I could do for the entire country, regardless of Republican or Democrat. I think every American deserves to see how Congress votes. And they were hiding it by ne- passing nearly every bill by voice. That was my biggest shocker. Marjorie Taylor Greene, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Martha. Thank you. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com, and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.